0: Church may be new for you, and you may be here because you're asking some of these questions, but we also want to give you a little bit of a taste of what we do Sunday by Sunday. And you'll know that all around Sydney on a day like this, lots of Christians just in the same age and stage of life as you are meeting together because they want to know God and they love Him. And so if this is your first taste of church or pretty recent taste of church, welcome. And what a great question to come with. Probably out of all the questions we've done, this one is the most personal and the most difficult. So I'm going to open by asking you to to join me in prayer so I can ask God to help us as we explore this question. Let's pray. Father, uh, we approach a really difficult question that touches so many of us, probably all of us in some ways, and so I pray that you'll help me speak clearly and you'll open up our hearts to be willing and open-minded just to explore what you have to say about this question in your word, the Bible. Amen. I wonder how uh, you celebrated New Year's Eve. No, not that long ago. It was only about one and a half months ago. How did you celebrate New Year's Eve? Well, for good friends of my wife, Karen, and I, um, Dan and Teresa Lee and their three kids. So, Dan and Teresa happened to be long term friends as well as the godparents of one of our children. This is what happened for them at New Year's Eve. I'm going to read out something that they wrote it and With their permission, they've also posted up on a Facebook group, and with their permission, um, I'll read it out to you. They write, What a year it's been. In the midst of watching fireworks from a balcony window tonight, our kids express the ache of not being able to share it with their baby sister. I think we'll turn it off. This time of year is not only painful, because Evie is no longer with us. Can you hear me? It's also the time of year we first discovered her diagnosis. We never heard of Edwards Syndrome before, but little did we know that these two words would come to define and shape most of 2018. A bit of background information, Edwards Syndrome is a chromosomal defect, also called Trisomy 18, Uh, Children who are diagnosed with it, usually in the womb, 50%, only 50% make it to full term. And of those who do, 90% do not live past their first birthday. Uh, They will have significant physical and mental defects, even if they are born. The official term given to babies with Edwards syndrome is that they are incompatible with life. It's a pretty harsh thing to realize. So that's uh, what Evie had. Let me keep reading. They write on Evelyn Talitha Pei Wang Li was born alive on June 8 this year after a nerve-wracking pregnancy, labor and birth. From there the brief 77 days we had with our beautiful daughter were sweet yet bitter, joyful yet stress-filled. We lived more days in hospital than at home, but she was alive. Well, Evie died on August 24 during a time when we thought she had become more stable. We had started to look towards hopefully having more days with her. Since August 24, we've deeply ached each day as a family. Our bodies and minds are exhausted by grief, pain, and a year's worth of adrenaline draining out of our bodies. Since August 24, we've put sobbing kids to sleep each night. Since August 24, we've had three family birthdays without Evie, A Father's Day without Evie, moved house without her, celebrated Christmas without her, and now the dawn of a new year. One Christian writer says, and I think quite true, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every situation. I think a lot of us would agree with that, right? We've been looking at questions for God. How do we know God is real? Week one, what is the purpose of life? Week two, last week. Next week will be what happens after we die. But this question, why is there so much suffering and evil, has been and will continue to be the biggest objection, the biggest doubt raiser, the biggest crisis. for Even if you are a Christian, the biggest crisis of faith will come from this question. If you look at the news, or if you know a little bit about what's going on in the world, there's even more suffering and evil, isn't there? It hasn't been on the news quite enough, but uh, the UN calls the greatest humanitarian crisis at the moment the Yemen conflict. So I don't know if you know, since 2015, there's been a civil war in Yemen. 60,000 have been killed, but that's not the worst of it. 20 million, that's almost the population of Australia, 20 million are on the verge of starvation right now. 85,000 children have already died from malnutrition. There are 3 million refugees. I mean, we're talking about such a scale of suffering and misery that, like these numbers, right? I'm just throwing them out, but how can you, how can you even imagine 20 million people starving? We can't, can we? The, the, the breadth of suffering is, is so enormous. But we don't even have to look so far amongst our, our church. We're not a big church, we're a medium sized church few hundred people but among our church family there are those battling cancer or have loved ones battling cancer right at this moment there are those with chronic and constant physical and or mental illness there are those who are suffering from or have suffered from domestic violence have survived sexual abuse many who have lost children some babies many who've lost parents, siblings, and not too old age either. There's some who are unemployed, struggling just to make ends meet. There are those grieving deeply from relationship breakups or relationship breakdowns. There are those grieving their singleness. There are those wanting to have babies, but not able to because of infertility. There are those struggling with loneliness, and I could go on, I mean... Just a sample of people, a few hundred people, and yet there is intense, ongoing suffering. So it does bring us to a really serious question, doesn't it? I mean, how, why is there so much suffering and evil if Christianity is true, if God is real? Now, I'm going to come at it in three, uh, three different questions, or sub-questions. And you'll see that actually, on the um, very simply, on the uh, handouts you got when you came in, The first one I want to start with is is sort of the logical question. I know some of you um, think this will be the most important objection, um, and it's great that we'll look at it, but I think probably for most of us, it's the more personal questions later on that'll be the ones that you want to have answers to. But I think we will best to start with the logical one, because often this is the question raised when it comes to why is it that suffering evil means I can't believe in the idea of a Christian God? And this is how basically the logic goes. If you have a look, I don't know if you can see it. It's pretty small writing. But uh, the logic goes like this. Assumption one is that an all-powerful God could end all suffering. Assumption two is an all-loving God would want to end all suffering. Now, the fact that there is suffering leads to the conclusion that an all-powerful and all-loving God could not exist or does not exist, yeah? And Christians do claim, the Bible claims that God is all-powerful and all-loving, so maybe the fact that suffering exists, and if these assumptions are true, then the God of the Bible can't exist. Now, that's a pretty important logic that is being used lots and lots of times over the centuries, and so we'll look at um, how we might kind of untie this knot. But before I look at uh, how we might untie it in the correct way, I want to tell you there are wrong ways to try to untie the knot. And the wrong way is to deny some of the assumptions or to bring in another logic that actually the Bible doesn't say is true. So the first way that some people try and get around it is saying, well, assumption one is obviously, Oh, sorry, assumption two is obviously not true. Assumption two is that an all-loving God would want to end all suffering. And some would say, well, maybe God is not all-loving. All right? What they mean is this. Um, God might do loving things, and He might do good things, but love and goodness are not as essential to God's nature as Him being all-powerful, all-sovereign, all-in-control. In In, in, in that way, they they talk about God being all-powerful sort of overrides His lovingness, all right? Because God can do what He wants, and whatever He does is good. You just have to Grin and bear it. Yeah? So that's one, one option. God is not intrinsically all-loving. It's more true to say He's all-powerful. Whatever He does is right. So just live with it. Don't question it. Um, can I gently suggest that Islam's answer to this question of suffering and evil leans in this direction? Allah ultimately is all-sovereign. What Allah chooses to do right, is always right. Who are you to question? Now that's one way of getting around it by questioning assumption two but it's not actually the way the bible talks about god god always does what is right he always does what is good and he is love right the bible doesn't say god is loving it goes further it says god is love love is just as part of his nature as any part of his godness including being all-powerful so we we can't go down that route if we are thinking of the biblical god what about questioning assumption one maybe god is not all-powerful Well, again, that's not the option the Bible would take. There are those who do say that. They want to say that, well, maybe the future is as unknown to God as it is to us. I mean, he's more powerful than us. He's smarter than us. He's like a master chess player. He can predict where all the moves go, but he doesn't actually control all the moves. That's one option that some theologians have taken. It's called open theism. Essentially, God is not quite all-powerful. Therefore, there's suffering because he hasn't he doesn't know in advance he doesn't control all future events unfortunately again that does not account for the bible's picture of god either right while god is all loving and all good it the bible also says that god is completely in control even in calamity and disaster and we'll see some of those passages later on so that is not a correct option either a third option which is probably one that um, sneaks in a lot more commonly, is the view of karma. You know the view of karma in a lot of Eastern religions especially? Karma is the you get what you give sort of thing. If you do something bad, it comes back at you. And often in Eastern religion traditions, it's karma over lifetime. So, you know, after you die, you get reincarnated, and what you come back as or the kind of fortunes you have in your next life depends very much on how you lived your former life. So there's suffering and evil, but suffering is caused by you paying for your wrongs karma coming back to you now again this is one explanation but it's not not only it's not biblical it's also quite an unjust explanation now karma gets thrown around a lot but if you really think about it karma is really unjust because if we believe in karma and especially if we believe in karma over a number of lifetimes then when you see someone suffering you actually shouldn't be helping them do you know what I mean? I mean? You could try to help them because it may improve your karma, but if you see someone who's suffering, it may be that they are paying for their sins from a past life. Right? You don't want to prevent their karma from coming back to them. So it actually prevents you from showing genuine compassion. You're getting what you deserve because of karma. It's a very unjust and unloving, uncompassionate way of looking at suffering. It really doesn't resolve the issue of suffering. There is, however, and this one I want to spend a bit more time on, the karma one. There's unfortunately a Christian version of karma, and this is one that I think we need to really address, because I think it's so wrong. But you might have heard it, and you might have heard public uh, figures who claim to be Christians talk about it, as if suffering comes to you because of something wrong that you did, and God is, you know directly punishing you for something wrong that you did and especially on a big big scale so for example in 2010 2010 there was an earthquake in Haiti i don't know if you remember that and there are those who actually started saying well god is punishing Haiti uh, and that's why he sent the earthquake because Haiti is known for its witchcraft and occult right that's a christian version of karma or hurricane katrina it was punishment for the mardi gras All right? and i wonder if that's what you've heard again Once you have that view, it's a very uncompassionate, very cruel, cold view of suffering. You're getting what you deserve. And God is that guy in the sky who just loves sending lightning bolts on people. Except that's not what the Bible says. See, Jesus was faced with that view of suffering once. And I'm just going to read a little bit out of that, a bit from Luke. It's from a biography of Jesus by a man called Luke. It's a historical document. And this is what uh, he wrote. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, that's the governor, the Roman government, governor, had mixed with their sacrifices. What he means is Pilate slaughtered a bunch of Jews and let the blood of the slaughtered mix down with their sacrifices happen at the temple and so on. It was a terrible, cruel, murderous event. Look at what Jesus answered. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. What's Jesus saying? To the people there who are essentially saying, these people who suffered either under Pilate or had the tower fall on them, a terrible building accident, they are somehow getting directly punished because they're more guilty. And Jesus very clearly says, no. Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. It's not the calm of you. So three wrong ways of trying to resolve this logic of God allowing suffering. So what is the Bible's answer? Well, there's really two parts to it. And the first part I want to let you know is to tell you that when the Bible talks about suffering, it goes right back to the ultimate origin of suffering, that there is an ultimate origin because God didn't create a world intending it to be a broken world full of suffering and evil the ultimate origin of suffering the bible says is what the bible calls sin sin isn't just doing bad things sin is us turning away rebelling against god our creator it's an attitude as well as actions the bible storyline is that god made it but we broke it sin is that breaking Right? He created a world intending it at having no suffering, a world where humanity could rule in a perfect way in relation to Him, each other, and the environment. But when humanity turned against our designer and creator, not only was suffering and evil uh, done by us for doing that, it also created a, like a massive rupture in the good creation. And so the bit that Derek read for us before, you might have noticed, it talks about the whole creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth. This is a picture of the whole creation in pain. It's not just people in pain, it's the natural environment in pain. We live in a world that is not the way that God created it. And so because the ultimate cause of all suffering is that breaking, sin, the rupturing, The Bible says that God is in control of suffering, right? but He is not the one who directly causes evil or suffering. So the Bible uses language like God, we use language like God allows suffering rather than God causing suffering because sin is the ultimate cause of suffering. So it's not true to say, my friend's cancer was caused by God. It's not true to say, baby evie was killed by god but the bible never allows us to talk in those terms we'll talk in a moment about god allowing it to happen but it's a different thing to saying god causing it to happen because the bible's view is that sin human sin against god turning away from god is the ultimate reason ultimate is important by the way because we're not saying that every instance of suffering was caused by a specific instance of sin that's the karma view that's not what the Bible's saying you got what i mean It is saying that we live in a groaning, suffering creation and world because humanity as a whole has turned away from God. So the direct ways that suffering comes, wars, murder, abuse, right? Obviously, they're due to sin. But even natural disasters, sicknesses, cancer, it's the natural order gone out of whack. We don't live in the world as God had intended the world to be, a world without suffering and pain. So that's the first thing I want to say about the Bible's answer. The ultimate origin is sin, But still, we might say, well, if God is all-powerful, then He could end suffering if He wanted. So back to the logic. What if God is all-powerful and all-loving and suffering exists? Doesn't it mean that therefore God doesn't exist? Well, you might have already figured out that the problem isn't assumption one. Assumption one is true. Assumption two is also true. We saw that messing with those assumptions is not the Bible's answer. But the way that the Bible answers this is by adding a third assumption, and have a look at that one because that's a really important one. Because if there is also true, assumption three, that an all-powerful and an all-loving God has good reasons, and here's the key, unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering, then the fact that suffering exists does not then lead to the conclusion of the first equation. Do you, do you get what I mean? Because it's then possible. If god assumption three is true that god has good reasons unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering that therefore the conclusion is that suffering doesn't disprove the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving god it just means that we don't have all the answers now you actually see that um in lots of places in the bible but one of them is at the in the mouth of someone who suffered a lot He's, he got betrayed by his own brothers he got sold into slavery left for dead um, and when he finally met his brothers again, this is a man called Joseph. He says to his brothers, "You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done—the saving of many lives." Now, at the time that Joseph was left for dead and sold into slavery, right? He couldn't see the reason for it. It wasn't revealed to him, but God allowed it. Horrible, evil things happened to him. His brothers did horrible things. Guilty of murder and slave trading almost but you see what he's saying in hindsight now he knows the answers he knows that god had intended it, worked it for good the saving of many lives see the bible's answer is that there may be reasons currently unknown to us especially as we suffer why god allows some evil and suffering now at times that seems like a lot of evil and a lot of suffering like the yemen crisis okay that's true There are reasons, but we do not know because God hasn't revealed it to us. That's the key. And He hasn't revealed it even though He is still all good and even though He is still all powerful. Now, at this point, some of you might still object and say, well, no, that's not good enough. That's a bit of a cop-out. If I can't see any reasons for suffering, then it means there are no good reasons for suffering. You guys are just playing with the logic? Possibly. But I also want to suggest to you that if that's your objection, then you must be at least at some point saying, as a finite human being, that just because you can't see any good reasons, there are no good reasons. And by doing that, do you see, we've got to actually put ourselves above God. We've got to actually say, we see better than God sees. We know more than God knows. That it couldn't possibly be the case that God has reasons unrevealed, unknown to us. You see how that puts us above God? I'm a parent. Um, the difference between me and my young kids is not even close to the difference between me as a human being and the God who made the universe. And yet there are so many times in my kid's life where I've just got to say, you just got to trust us on this. I'm not going to tell you the reasons because you can't take it yet. Right? You can't take the reasons, but just trust us. This is the reason why Well, something's happening but I'm not gonna, I can't explain to you why yet. But there are good reasons. Do you see what I mean? Even as a parent. But the gap between my kids and I are not even close to the gap between us as human beings and the God who made everything. And so there may be good reasons He hasn't told us yet. So that's the first question. The first question is the logical question. How could an all-powerful and all-loving God allow suffering or exist in spite of the fact that there is suffering? Again, I said that's the logical one, and for some of us that's really important. For others, though, we want to get to the ones that actually hit us personally. And the second question I want to deal with then is, well, that may be the case. Okay, I get the logic. Yeah, God may exist. But I want to know what He's going to do about the suffering because we do, frankly, live in a world where there's so much suffering. Well, again, a couple of things I want to say in this question. I guess I want to start firstly by saying The Bible's view is that God hates suffering, all right? It's not like He's the God who's at a distance saying, well, you know, this is just the world, the way the world has to be. Um, I'm just gonna let the suffering happen a little bit. I'm gonna allow it. I've got my reasons. You guys just have to suck it up and bear it, okay? No sympathy, no compassion. That's not how the Bible talks about God in relation to His children who suffer. Look at this passage. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, for He knows how we are formed, He remembers that we are dust god is all loving he hates suffering this is not how he intended it and he hates to see us suffer his heart bleeds with compassion at the way that we suffer at the way we've ruined our world at the way we've ruined ourselves god hates suffering and because he hates it and because he is all loving and all good He's going to do something about it. You see what he says? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. God is not going to ignore justice, the atrocities of war, the terrible suffering that you've endured, especially if it's come as a result of people and people who've gotten away with it. There is coming a day when God will make all things right, including suffering. So that's the second thing I want to say. Firstly, God hates suffering. Secondly, God will fix suffering The day is coming. God will end suffering. In His love and in His power, He will restore everything that was lost, even though we broke it. You see, the Bible storyline isn't just that God made it and we broke it. The third part is that God will fix it. We made it. uh, God made it. We broke it. But God will fix it. And that's the Christian hope. That's what Nelson was talking about. This life is only temporary. There is another life coming. And in that life, Everything will be fixed up. Look at the picture at the end of the Bible about what will happen. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That is a new creation to fix up, transform the old one. There will no longer be any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. Obviously, this is picture language. It's not literal. I'm meant to give you a picture. But look at this bit. God has promised there is a day when I will wipe every tear from every eye. Someone once said, I suppose if God wanted to wipe tears from eyes, He could do it like Thanos. just a click of a finger, tears disappear. But that's not what it says here. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. It's, it's very personal. He will wipe the tears that you have cried because He has compassion on you. Because while you were in life and He allowed the suffering and you were crying, He was bleeding with you. But there will come a day where he says, Child, you don't have to cry anymore. I know it was hard. Let me wipe that tear from you. That's the picture of the Bible. God will fix it. But then you might be thinking, Well, great. Why not fix it now? Why not fix it before 2015, before the Yemen Civil War? Why not fix it before baby Evie was born? Well, the reason the Bible gives is The third point I want to talk about under this question, right? God hates suffering. God will fix it. But here's the third thing. God will fix it completely. When God fixes suffering, he's going to do a complete job of it. He's not going to just fix Yemen and leave other parts of the world in conflict. He's not just going to fix Evie and leave other children starving in Yemen. Do you see what I mean? He's going to fix suffering completely, roots and fruit cause and effect but in order to do that you see remember i said the bible says the ultimate cause of all suffering all brokenness is human sin turning away from god if he's going to fix all suffering he has to deal with all sin otherwise it wouldn't be a complete job otherwise he'd only be dealing with the symptoms and not the cause giving you panadol because you have a headache but not dealing with the cancer that might be causing the headache you see One day he's going to deal with it all. But it means that he has to deal with sin, which then means that if there is sin that hasn't been dealt with, if a person has sin in their life that hasn't been forgiven, guilt that hasn't been dealt with and confessed, lives that hasn't been made right with God, unfortunately, then people with undealt with sin will be part of the problem that's swept away. Do you see? And so the reason why God hasn't fixed all suffering yesterday today even, possibly tomorrow, and definitely hasn't 20 years ago, is because He's patient. Look what the Bible says in 2 Peter 3. It says that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, His promise of fixing the world, as some understand slowness. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, if God had fixed all suffering before the year 2000, then Nelson would not have had that opportunity to go to the camp. Learn about Jesus, had his sins forgiven. If he had fixed up suffering five years ago, there are people here who would not be able to spend eternity with him in the new world. Do you see what I mean? Every day that God waits is a day for people to turn to him to have their sins forgiven. And that's what he's offering everyone today. You can today turn to him. To have your sins forgiven to be right with him so that when he comes and fixes up the world you will be part of the solution not the problem so that was our second question how is god going to fix suffering the third one is even more personal how do i know that god cares about me in my suffering because one and two may be true but you might be going through a really tough time how do you know that god cares well again three answers under that one the first one i want to say is the bible talks about God not staying at a distance. We know that God cares. The Bible says that God cares. The Christian view of God is again so unique because it is the only religion, the view of God, that says that God became one of us, fully one of us, not just appeared as one of us to walk around. He actually fully became a man in the person of Jesus. It happened in the first Christmas over 2,000 years ago. God became flesh says John, and made his dwelling among us. Hebrew says Jesus himself suffered and was tempted and tested. No other religion can claim that God cared enough about suffering people to become one of them so that he could experience suffering. In fact, the other monotheistic faiths, you know, the other two great religions that believe only in one God, Islam and Judaism, both consider this fact of Christianity the greatest blasphemy that God would Allah would become a man shocking it would not happen and yet this is the glory of the Christian faith our God cared enough to become one of us to walk into our shoes and so look at Jesus's life he was born not in a palace but born poor he worked with his hands he likely lost his dad when he was young he was misunderstood and opposed. He was betrayed by his closest friend. He was falsely charged. He was tortured and crucified by the age of 33. Don't you know, talk about suffering. God experienced it all. But more than that, he suffered way more than any of us will suffer. And it's not just because of crucifixion. Other people have been crucified in the past, other people have suffered greater torture physically. But when the Bible talks about Jesus crucified, there's a couple of elements that make His suffering way more intense than we could possibly imagine. Firstly, we're talking about God crucified. God became a man but remained fully God. The infinite God lost infinitely more when He died, more than any human being could possibly imagine. But the other thing about his crucifixion, it wasn't just the physical pain, you see. Remember, we talked about the ultimate cause of suffering is sin. How is God going to deal with human sin to make sinners, people like us, right with him without just sweeping it under the carpet because that would be unjust for God? Well, he does it because God became a man in order to bear sin. He takes our sin in our place on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he was facing hell. Hell. Because that's what we deserved. Being cut off from God and His blessings. Being punished for the way that we've treated Him and each other. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to take that instead of my people. I'm going to go in their place. And so on the cross, it wasn't just the physical suffering He endured. It was the spiritual, emotional, mental anguish of being cut off from God as God's Son. That's a suffering that no one will ever have to experience, and yet He did. You see, you can never say that the Christian God doesn't care because Jesus went into the cross. Look at what our Hebrew says. Another part of the Bible says, Since the children, that's God's children, have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death is the ultimate suffering, Really? we will talk more about that next week, but Jesus goes and tastes death so that those who trust in Jesus will never have to fear it. A Christian theologian called Peter Kreef said, God's answer to the problem of suffering is that he came right down into it. Many Christians try to get God off the hook for suffering. Well, God put himself on the hook by putting himself on the cross. So, how do we know God cares about me and my suffering? Number one, God became a man. Number two, God suffered on the cross. But thirdly, also, God rose again from the dead. See, Jesus rose again three days later. When he pictures that new heaven and new earth at the end of the Bible, that I read it before from Revelation, how do we know it's going to happen? How do we know that's guaranteed going to happen? Well, in history, Jesus walked out of the tomb three days after he was crucified. The Bible says that when that happened, it was like that new creation come in advance in a little part. It's a down payment. It's the, you know, the first fruits, right? The first part of the harvest that guarantees the rest of the harvest in agricultural language. And because Jesus has risen again, death is no longer the end for Him and for anyone who trusted Him. But you know what? More of that next week. Well, let me close by talking to possibly two groups of people here. There's going to be those of you who are skeptics. And we're so glad you're here because almost every week we'll have people come with questions. And it's actually good to have a healthy skeptical attitude. Don't just believe in a world of fake news and Donald Trump. Don't just believe anything you hear, right? Skepticism can be really healthy. And we're so glad you're asking these tough questions. And we're not afraid of the questions. And neither is God. And neither is the Bible. But today, I may not have convinced you in the last 25 minutes um, To let go of all your skepticism about the bible and christianity that's fine i can't do that in 25 minutes might i leave with you leave you with a thought though i wonder if you're willing to be as skeptical about the alternatives as well yeah be skeptical about the christian answer but are you as skeptical about the non-christian other religion answers to suffering because here's the thing about the question of suffering and evil it's not unique to christianity we're not the only religion only system of thought that has to deal with the answer Every single religion, even every single non-religion, has to deal with the question, what do we do about suffering? Why is it there? How is it consistent with my way of thinking? So let me just encourage you, if you're going to walk away still a bit skeptical about Christianity, be skeptical about the alternatives. Particularly, be skeptical if you've come with a there may not be a God at all, or what we call a closed universe view of the world. Look what some of the leading atheists say about suffering. Christopher Hitchens, when he was uh, dying of cancer, he's now dead, he said, I'm here as a product of process of evolution, which doesn't make very many exceptions and which rates life relatively cheaply. He wrote that because he's saying, don't grieve over me, don't mourn over me, don't even ask why I've got cancer. It just is, right? This is what evolution is like. What about Richard Dawkins? famous atheistic scientist, he says, "...in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference." if you have a closed universe view of the world the most consistent view is unfortunately richard dawkins's view which means to even ask the question and rail against suffering and evil as if it shouldn't happen is not a valid question to ask not a valid feeling because it just is if this is all there is time plus matter plus chance then why are we even asking the question of why suffering do you see that's what dawkins is saying Now, I I don't know about you, most atheist friends would absolutely not believe that, and maybe that's you as well. But my point is this, be skeptical about the alternatives, because that is the atheistic alternative, and quite frankly, I'm a bit skeptical about that. And so should you. What about if you are in the other camp, which for some of you here, you're genuinely here because you're seeking You're seeking answers to suffering in your life and the suffering you see around the world. Can I just say, this is not an accident you're here. In fact, God often uses suffering to be that wake-up call. Yeah? I mean, how many times in life do you suddenly realize life is short? That you don't know what might happen tomorrow. That you can't just take good health and good fortune for granted. It's often when suffering comes that you awaken to those questions, right? Can I just suggest to you that maybe that's how God has led you here, and if that's the case, don't waste it. The author C.S. Lewis, when his wife died of cancer, wrote a book reflecting on the grief that he felt, and he wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to wake a deaf world. You may be here because some level of suffering has led you here to seek, and that's why you are seeking. You might not have at a different time in your life. But if that's the case, don't waste it. Keep seeking. I'll tell you how to do that in a moment. But let me um, give some conclusion to to the story of Evie, the true uh, things that happened to my friends just very recently last year. Baby Evie who died after 77 days. I'm going to keep reading what they wrote. It has been hard without her here, almost impossible at times. There have been days where every, everything feels like a new normal, but other days when we cry and fall apart completely and everything is a struggle. While in many ways we're glad to see the back of 2018, we approach 2019 knowing there's no guarantee that it'll be any better. Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. While we know that God works for the good of those who love Him, the good is not defined by us but by Him. Good on God's terms might mean pain and suffering and angst and grief that drives us in the direction of being more like Jesus. As we come to the end of the year, we look back and wish that things had been different. We long to have our daughter and our baby sister back in our arms. However. We're seeking shelter from the battering we feel in God, our rock and refuge. We're clinging to the secure hope of the resurrection that Jesus has won for us, that remains our hope. We're surviving thanks to Him. Just a few days ago, we read this in the Bible. Lamentations 3 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness with every morning, every month, every year, every decade. God is still a God of faithful, loving kindness. Can you believe that? To say that after losing a precious baby girl? God is still a God of faithful, loving kindness. Not ignoring the pain, not denying the hurts, Still to be able to say God is a God of faithful, loving kindness. Look what they wrote on um, Evie's tombstone. Evelyn Talitha Pei Wang Lee adored for 77 days, now compatible with eternal life. And I love this line. See there? God never says oops. We grieve with hope because Jesus has risen. We love you and Jesus loves you. See, here's the thing, and Nelson mentioned it before. Everyone without exception here, every one of you, every one of us will suffer. Some of you are going through such intense suffering, you, you don't think you can bear any more. Others may have thought you've gone through suffering, but hey, more's coming. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to spare any of us. Everyone will suffer, and then everyone will die. Okay? That's a fact. It doesn't matter what you believe. Religion, no religion, God or no God, this is going to happen. But, those who have Jesus... Like my friends Dan and Teresa, there. Can you see? They have something that not even suffering and death can destroy. And while you may not walk away from here with all the logical f- answers that you are craving, I hope you at least hear one Christian's testimony, not mine, Dan and Teresa's, of how powerful it is for those who follow Jesus to have a hope, an anchor even when there are no answers to suffering we all suffer we all will but not all of us will get to suffer like that and I don't know about you but I want to suffer like that and God is offering that to you today they're not special people Dan and trees I've known them all their lives for a lot they're not that special right but God is and you can know God like they do So, what are next steps for you if you're a seeker especially even if you're a skeptic can i just say find out more i'm not going to today ask you to decide to become a christian today but i will encourage you to find out more Uh, we've only got one left in this series the next question for god come back next week right thanks for those who've come previous weeks come back for one more week it's on what happens after we die and that's probably a good one to follow on from today. Um, if you're free on Saturday and Sunday, um, a pretty big name international speaker, Franklin Graham, is going to be at, uh, in the ICC, the International Convention Center. Go and hear him out. Right? There's a group from our church going on this Saturday if you want some friends to go with. Um, is PT here? PT, Go see PT. Free tickets. Right? Find out more, whatever you can. You want a book to read? Let me know give you good books that you can investigate but probably the best thing is to um take up our our fresh series which is happening you know so next sunday is our last question and then the tuesday two days after that we're going to start fresh it's going to be a punch ball community center very close to here um coffee small groups. you hear a short talk you get to interact with the talk you get to discuss on your table groups it's not like this. This is me monologuing. That's discussion. And over five weeks, you're going to deal with some of the questions. Like, for example, a lot is hinged on Jesus rising from the dead. Well, how in the world can I be confident that He did rise from the dead? Because people generally don't rise from the dead. Right? And how do I even know the Bible's accounts are true? How do I know the Bible's true? Because that's how you're basing His resurrection. So those questions, they get dealt with afresh. It's one of the best five-week investments you can make, even if you can only going come for a few of them. Um, come along so um, the information is on those cards it's fresh ones um, and let us know if you can come all right I'm going to get the band to come up because what we're going to do is we're going to sing and then um, before we go we're going to also I'll come back up after we sing uh, and we'll talk a little bit about how I can help you take those next steps okay let's sing Stand in. respond in some.